Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who was charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative, because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we presented prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn's opening statement to the trial's jury. In this installment, we covered defense attorney Edward Belinkus's opening. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Late on the morning of March 28, 2022, after Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn concludes his opening statement in the attempted murder trial of Michael Barrison, Judge Stephen Taylor invites defense attorney Edward Belinkus to present his opening. Belinkus appears to be in his late 60s. He has the pugnacious appearance of a union boss, sporting slick-backed graying hair and wearing a dark suit, white shirt, and a red tie. He addresses the jury directly without any audiovisual aids. The attorney begins with a dramatic reenactment of Michael Barrison's entreaties to a 911 operator. Help, I'm in fear of my life. Help, I fear for my life. Someone, anyone, please help me. I'm in fear of my life. Those are the cries for help from Michael Barrison. Those cries fell on deaf ears. My name is Edward Belinkin. At counsel table, Christopher Dying and I are charged with representing Michael Barrison. An awesome responsibility. Stop and think for a second of the magnitude presumed as the law requires, demands that my client is innocent. If I get a little emotional, excited, I raise my voice, I mean no disrespect. I am the only thing standing between this man and a wrongful conviction. Me and the truth. I have his life in my hands. I accept that responsibility. On August 7th, 2019, Lauren Canarach was shot twice. A third bullet was discharged. Fortunately, it didn't hit anyone. Thank God she survived, is riding again, and living a normal life. It's a tragedy that Lauren Canarak was shot on that day. That said, there is another tragedy. A tragedy that will be played out in this courtroom. The tragic story of Michael Barrison, an Olympic athlete a world-class dressage trainer, a man who on the outside appeared strong, confident, 
in total control. But what the evidence will show, a much different picture. A man who had a horrible childhood, was physically abused by his mother, sexually molested by a neighbor, over and over and over again. A man who left home to get away from all of that and found solitude, security in the equestrian community. A man who worked his way up to the top of the ladder, the top of his field, but behind the scenes was struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, even delusion. You'll learn that over a 20-year period prior to the shooting, he was seeing a therapist on and off. Belinkus next pivots to frame for the jury what their responsibilities are in this trial. As the prosecutor said, he's now charged with four crimes. As the judge instructed you, the indictment is not evidence. And what brings this case before you, it's a vehicle to allow us to come up here and argue this case. That grand jury only heard one side, which I submit is going to be a lot different what all of you will hear in this courtroom. Defense wasn't there to question or challenge the state's case. You will learn, ladies and gentlemen, that the prosecutor's case is flawed. You will learn that they did little or no evidence with regards to what actually happened on August 7th. Worst off, they ignored what transpired prior to the shooting and are now trying to fill in the blanks after the fact. You will learn, ladies and gentlemen, that the prosecutor's only evidence will come from the testimony of the two alleged victims, two people who have lied over and over and over again, left things out and changed their story. Their words after you hear the whole truth will cast doubt on what happened, who attacked who, and who is the person that's responsible for this tragedy. It's the prosecutor's position that my client had a few problems with Lauren Canarac and her boyfriend. No big deal, uh, got angry, just drove down to the house and shot both of them, shot her and shot at the boyfriend. That's not what the evidence is going to show. The fact will lead you to a far different conclusion. What the prosecutor didn't tell you, what this case is really about, it's about Lauren Canarac, her father and her boyfriend, devising a plan to destroy this man and drive him crazy. It's about the most devious attempt to destroy another human being that you will ever hear. It's about Lauren Hatterack falsely accusing Michael Barrison of all sorts of misdeeds, criminal conduct even, and even the sexual abuse of his girlfriend's small child. And the whole time, ladies and gentlemen, the whole time she's doing this, knowing how her personal attacks were adversely affecting this man and getting pleasure, amusement, even thinking it was funny at him deteriorating. Every man, woman has a drinking point. Some people are stronger than others. That, ladies and gentlemen, is really what this case is about. So there's no misunderstanding what my defense is. I'm not going to leave anything out in this opening statement. My client is not guilty. At the time of the shooting, my client feared for his life. He was suffering from a mental disease 
and did not know what he was doing was wrong. That concept of purposefulness that the prosecutor talked about. Under the law, our society recognizes that some people may be bad and some people may be sick. The law recognizes that a hostile act may result from some infirmity or sickness of the mind which an individual did not design. It is society's judgment which is recognized by our law, the law that all of you have been sworn to protect, that a forbidden act should not be punished criminally unless done with the knowledge of wrongdoing. It's important that all of you know at this point, and the judge will instruct you as to the law at the end of the case, but it's important that you know that if a person is found not guilty by reason of insanity, that person will be not freed or indefinitely committed to a mental institution. The court will hold hearings, make determinations that provide for that individual, but also provide to protect the public. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next part of his opening, defense attorney Belinkus offers the jury the beginnings of his narrative, weaving together the evidence that they will hear in this trial. Let's look at the evidence. Michael Barrison owned two stables, one in New Jersey, one in Florida. Lauren Canarak and her father make a deal to board and train their horses at Michael Barrison's company. Barrison agrees to train Canarak and her horses, and also and this becomes important, agrees to give her living accommodation. At first, things go all right. Then a problem develops between Canarac, Barrison, and his girlfriend, Mary Hoskins Gray. Now, I'm sure Lauren Canarac is going to take that stand and give her side of the story and try to blame other people for whatever issues arose. However, you will see Lauren Canarac's social media posts that will tell the real story, the scary story. You will learn that Kenarak becomes obsessed with Mary Haskins and blames her for all her shortcomings. She believes that Mary Haskins, his girlfriend, is trying to destroy her life, her livelihood, and her riding career. You'll learn that she starts causing problems at the stables. She starts badmouthing. Barrisone, Mary Haskins, and the staff members. She starts posting on social media for the world to see disparaging remarks, attacking them and their business. You'll learn that she tells people, which Barrisone sees on these posts, that he abuses and neglects horses in the equestrian community. That is a death knell, obviously. That he's a deadbeat. He doesn't pay his bills. She even calls him a criminal and accuses him of insurance fraud. And then she starts alleging on social media that she has been bullied and that her life has been threatened. 
and you'll learn that all these things are false. They never happen. Because of those attacks, Michael Barrison starts looking into Lauren Cataract and her boyfriend. They call numerous people in the business, and the equestrian community is a small, close-knit community. She's told various things about Goodwin and Cataract. She's giving names of people. Him and Mary Haskins call these people and talk to them. You will see the true Lauren Cataract in these posts, and you will see why Michael Barrison becomes afraid of her. What the evidence will show is that at some point, as early as 2018, she's told if she doesn't like it here, to leave. You don't like the way you train, you don't like this, you don't like that, leave. She refuses. it. You'll see at some point she starts ramping up her social media attack, starts posting threatening things on Facebook. You'll learn that Michael Barrison, his girlfriend, and other staff members start pulling up her Facebook post and looking about what she's posting. They see postings of her talking incessantly about guns, carrying guns, sleeping with a 9mm under her pillow. They see posts of her saying that she's being bullied by a six foot three foot man and that she's afraid of this person. She talks incessantly about going to war. It's time. War is inevitable. She said things like, weapons hot. After Barrison sees these posts, he contacts the father and basically says, this can't go on. She has to leave. It's important to note at this point. When all these crazy things are going on, when all these posts, threatening posts, are occurring, she is living above Michael Barrison in his house in an upper apartment with her boyfriend. The evidence will show that once these posts are pulled up, everybody is digging into Lauren Cataract's Facebook post. Michael Barrison finds a post where Lauren Cataract threatened to kill both her and Mary Haskins, and destroy his business. You'll see the post. Although she uses metaphors, it will be clear who she's talking about and what her intentions are. You will learn that after Michael Barrison sees this post, he flees his own home, his castle. He takes his family, the girlfriend, and a small child, and leaves that farmhouse and flees to the stable area. He is now sleeping on a couch, living out of a suitcase in the club area. There'll be evidence to clearly indicate that Michael Barrison is afraid. He's scared. You'll see evidence, ladies and gentlemen, that on July 31st, he hires a private security. You'll learn that they ran a background check and gave it to Barrison. That same night, on July 31st, approximately a week before the shooting, Barrison, his girlfriend, and other people are up at the stable area, and numerous people hear Lauren Cataract screaming that she is going to destroy everything in Mary Haskins' life, everything she loves and holds dear. Upon hearing that threat, Michael Barrison calls 911. Washington Township responds. He says, I am in fear of my life of this woman. The police do nothing. Barrison tries to show him the paperwork, the, the background check that he got, the threatening post. It's a civil matter. They do nothing. The next day, August 1st, 
Marisone starts calling people to get help. He calls the general counsel, who he knows, of the United States Equestrian Federation. He calls the CEO of the United States Equestrian Federation, the agency the prosecutor talked about. He calls the police officer, who's a friend of his, telling them what's going on. You'll learn on that day, August 1st, Lauren Cataract comes to the stable. She comes after hours, after the stables are closed. And again, she's now coming after hours to the stables, which have become Michael Barrison's last refuge of safety. She's told to leave by the owner of the property. She refuses, she flips out. Michael Barrison calls 911 again for the second time. They come, Washington Township. I am in fear of my life. Nothing. What's interesting on that day, August 1st, is that Washington Township calls the Morris County Prosecutor's Office. They talk about what's going on. And after that discussion, the police officer tells both Barrison and Lauren Cataract, Mr. Barrison, you can't restrict her movement on your farm. She could come and go whenever, wherever she wants. You'll learn that they gave Lauren Cataract free reign of the property, including his now residence. Michael Barrison is so afraid. He has no idea what to do, how to protect himself. He hires a private security guard and pays him $100 a night to sit in front of the stables with his truck pointed towards the farmhouse where Cataract and her boyfriend are living, to guard them. You'll learn that Barrison is not sleeping at this point. He's walking the property at all hours of the night, trying to protect his family, the people who work there, the horses. You'll learn he is so afraid. On the next day, August 2nd, five days before the shooting, he and Mary Hopkins send her son home. 11-year-old son, they send him back to the father because they're concerned about his safety. You learn that Barrison's trying to get some evidence or something to convince the police that Canarac should not be there. You learn on that night, he checks their trash and finds Suboxone, empties Suboxone packages in Canarac's trash. Suboxone is a drug used by heroin addicts. You learn on the next day, August 3rd, Cataract is still posting crazy things after she has been told to leave. You'll learn at that point, around August 3rd, Michael Barrison has a feeling or thinks he's being recorded. Private conversations that he's having with his girlfriend and other people at the table start being posted. You'll learn that on that day, Lauren Cataract posts the post and basically says, I have multiple personalities, and I am not responsible for my actions. Barrison sees that post. He calls 911 again, a third time. I am in fear of my life. He also tells the police that he thinks he's being recorded. They do nothing. What they do do, unbeknownst to Michael Barrison, is that they go and talk to Lauren Cataract. And what will become important when you're judging someone's credibility is that on that day, Lauren Cataract tells the police that she's recording Barrison and the staff. The police do nothing. They conduct no investigation. And worst of all, 
They don't go and tell Michael Barrison. This woman's recording your private conversations. They just leave the property. On the 4th, three days before the shooting, Canarac is posted crazy texts to Michael Barrison. After she's told to leave, she's texting him that she's going to send people that he doesn't know onto his property, into his stable, to ride her horses. She also says she's going to put elderly people or infants in his house that know what to do. He calls his lawyer. The lawyer says, if anyone comes on the property, you need releases. On that day, Canarac comes to the stable again. Barrisone tells her, you must sign a release. She flips out, makes threatening remarks. Barrisone calls the police, 911, again, for the fourth time. I am in fear of my life. Again, the police do nothing. On August 5th, Canarac is posting texting things using the exact words that Michael Barrisone and others used in private conversations. He hires a debugging company. He has no idea where this is coming from, how she's recording him. He pays that debugging company $5,000 to come in and sweep the area. They don't find anything, but you'll see a post where Lauren Canarac boasts about putting the devices where no one can find them. The evidence will show, ladies and gentlemen, that with regards to Barrison thinking in his mind that his private conversations were being recorded, that Lauren Canarac, her father, and the boyfriend were secretly recording numerous conversations. We have over 70 private conversations that they recorded in the residence, stable, the club area, which became his residence, and even his private office. What's worse, not only is Canarac illegally recording Michael Barrison, she starts using those recordings to taunt him, to push him over the edge. She's posting for everyone to see private conversation. You'll see in one of those postings that Barrison saw that she says she thinks it's funny watching them scurry around trying to have a conversation. Well, that's not all. For that day, Michael Barrison has his lawyer send Cataract a letter, a three-page letter, laying everything out, saying, get out, because Barrison knew that his lawyer had sent that letter. He was concerned for his safety. He personally went to the Washington Township Police Department with stacks of papers and whatever evidence he had accumulated at this point to try to plead with them for help. He doesn't even get into the back. Three officers come out and, and basically say, get out of here. You know, we've been to your house. We told you we can't do anything here. And they push him out of the office. They don't look at anything on the 6th, the day before the shooting. Cataract, after she gets that letter to get out, ramps up her attacks even further. She posts a three-page post falsely accusing Barrison and Haskins of various untrue things. She even puts in those posts for everyone to see the private conversation on that day the 6th, the day before the shooting. After the letter on the 5th, Cataract is served with a formal eviction notice. You'll learn that things get even worse for Barrison. You'll learn that Cataract and Goodwin filed a complaint with the town 
saying that Barrison was doing construction in the house and stable with no permits, and they made an allegation that both locations were unsafe to habitate. What you'll also learn is that Lauren Canarac's boyfriend, the one who made the complaint with Canarac, was the one doing the work. You'll learn that on the 6th, the town comes to Barrison's stable. They kick him out of his last place of refuge. He is now living, sleeping on a mattress outside on a porch in front of the stable. He is now virtually homeless. You'll learn the whole time the town was there, and they came in mass, fire protection, health department, building. Robert Goodwin was there pointing out everything to make sure Barrison would get kicked out of the residence. You'll see how upset Barrison was. And Goodwin saw how upset Barrison was. At one point when the town is there, after he's been kicked out of his stable area and is living on his front porch, Robert Goodwin, when their backs are turned to him, takes his finger, makes it in the shape of a gun, pulls the trigger, and mouths the word to Michael Barrison, get ready. You learn that even that wasn't enough for them. Lauren Cameron wasn't even satisfied with that type of destructive behavior. You'll learn on the day of the shooting, August 7th, she posts another threatening post. She's talking and telling the world that she has eyes and ears in places that can't ever be detected. She talks about having fun watching them. You'll learn that on the morning of the shooting, Robert Goodwin, the boyfriend, and the blacksmith have a problem, an argument. The blacksmith doesn't want to shoe their horses anymore because of what's going on at the stable. You'll learn that he blames Michael Barrison and makes a threat. There's going to be consequences the day after he uses the finger gesture. That statement was relayed to Barrison. It's not over yet. There'll be more evidence. And you will learn, ladies and gentlemen, that Lauren Canarac set in motion the final, what I call the coup de grace. She did the worst thing any human being could do to another human being. She falsely accused him of sexual misconduct with his girlfriend's son. As the prosecutor said on the 7th, DCPP Dyfus shows up and confronts both Barrison and Haskell. She's really not supposed to tell anybody anything with regards to her investigation. But you will know evidence that Barrison was made aware of the allegations of sexual abuse. You'll learn at that point, after all that he had gone through and suffered, he starts to have a complete mental breakdown. You'll learn that from that point, he has no memory of what happened. Everything went black. Now, what the evidence will show is that Michael Barrison got into his truck, drove to the farmhouse, He's described, and the prosecutor said in his opening, angry, furious. This is how Robert Goodwin described him. Calm, sorrowful, sorrowful, not angry, not furious, according to Goodwin. Michael Barrison says, can't we work this out? I don't want to go to war. It's important that you know he uses the word that Canara continually taunted him with, at which point, again, according to Goodwin. Goodwin says, it's past that, talk to your attorney. Now this is what happened, what the evidence will show. Robert Goodwin turns his back, walks away. Lauren Cataract then walks past Goodwin. 
to confront Michael Barrison. Because the defendant professes to have no memory of the shooting itself, and because most of the evidence that will be presented at trial with respect to that shooting will come from the complaining witnesses, defense attorney Belinkus uses this next portion of his opening to suggest to the jury the evidentiary gaps and inconsistencies in the statements made by those witnesses. They say Michael Barrison just fired two shots in her chest and one at Goodwin. What the evidence will show is that Michael Barrasso was severely beaten by both Goodwin and Cataract. You'll see pictures of the horrific beating that this man took. Neither of them mentioned in their original statements that Cataract was involved in this beating. Neither of them mentioned that they had sicked their vicious dog on Michael Barrasso. You'll see various bite marks over Barrison's body, including one vicious bite to the inner groin area. You'll learn when the police arrive, the Washington Township Police, the same people that had been there four times previously, you'll learn when the police arrive, they have no idea who the shooter is. <clears throat> Remember, Barrison's the one that said his life was in danger previously. You will learn, ladies and gentlemen, that when the police arrive there, they see Goodwin on top of Barrison beating the hell out of him. Neither of them have a gun in their hand. The gun is on the ground. They're rolling around. You will hear Goodwin's voice in a 911 call. And although he'll claim that those statements were made after the shooting, when you hear him say repeatedly over and over again, I am going to fucking kill you. Don't move, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to kill you. As I said, when the police arrive, they have no idea who the shooter is. The officer, the first officer on the scene, asked the question, who's the shooter? Robert Goodwin, Michael Barrison. Case closed. You'll learn that Barrison was beaten so badly, so severely, he, had, he was in no condition to do or say anything in response to that question. You will hear evidence with respect to the first officer who arrived on the scene. He describes Barrison as partially conscious. The second officer on the scene describes him as incoherent. The third officer recalls Barrison saying over and over again, Is this real? I need to wake up. He tells all the medical personnel, the first aid people, EMS, Morristown Medical, and all the people at the hospital, when they're treating him, asking him what happened, he tells all of them, I don't remember, I have no recollection of the event. You'll learn from the time DCPP arrived that he heard the allegation to the point when he woke up in the hospital, he has no memory of that event. And there'll be testimony with regards to being caused by either the mental breakdown or the fear, physical beating he took to his head. You'll learn that after Robert Goodwin points to Michael Barrison and said he's the shooter, they let him walk around. They don't do anything with him. You'll learn that there was a camera right above where this alleged attempted murder occurred. Washington Township was aware of it that night. The Morris County Prosecutor's Office was aware of it that night. Goodwin says it would have captured the whole thing. You'll learn that Washington, like they had done in the past, 
And the prosecutor's office never sees that camera. They allowed the camera to stay in the possession of Goodwin and Cataract for months. And months later, when they finally put two to two together, they tried to download the information on the camera, but unfortunately, nothing was on it. In the final part of his opening, defense attorney Belinkus explains to the jury the role that mental health experts will play in his defense of Michael Barrison. You're going to hear from two highly trained experts, a psychiatrist and a psychologist, who's done a tremendous amount of work evaluating and testifying in hundreds and hundreds of cases for both the state and for defense cases. They don't just do work for one or the other which I submit their credibility would be subject to attack. You'll learn that they did extensive, exhaustive evaluations of Michael Barrison, And in their expert opinion, at the time of the incident, Michael Barrison was suffering from a mental defect. And based on his delusions, he generally felt his life was in danger and needed to act in self-defense. And as a result of the mental illness, he was not aware of the nature and quality of his acts and certainly didn't know right from wrong. Every man has a breaking point. And when you hear the evidence, you may not even need expert testimony. You will hear overwhelming evidence of the mental torture thrust upon this man, a man with prior mental issues. You'll learn about the exhaustive, the numerous steps he took to protect himself and his family. And you will hear from numerous people who saw him crumbling mentally to the point where they believed he was going to kill himself. Look at the evidence. More importantly, look at the lack of evidence. I submit with respect to the shooting, you will know who did what. The only thing you will be certain of after looking at all the events leading up to the shooting, coupled with Barrison's prior mental health issues, is that under the law, without question, Michael Barrison is not guilty. After Belinkus concludes his opening, Judge Stephen Taylor offers the jury some final instructions before the first witnesses are called. All right, thank you, Mr. Belinkus. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the opening statements by counsel have been concluded. Please bear in mind, as I told you at the outset, what the attorneys say to you during their opening statements is not evidence. The evidence only comes from the witness stand. And some of the references and evidence you heard in this case during the opening statements is not admissible for every purpose. It doesn't necessarily go to guilt or innocence. Some of the statements that you heard, for instance, reference to some physical or sexual abuse the defendant may have suffered based on his statements to experts, that's limited to the underlying purpose and the underlying conclusions of the expert witnesses. What did they rely on in order to form their opinion? All right, and there's some other limited instructions I'm going to give you as the case goes along as to the purposes you use certain evidence you hear in this case. Some of the evidence you heard in the openings is admissible only as it pertains to the mental status of the defendant based on the testimony of the experts. And when you're about to hear that evidence or after you hear it, I will give you some of those limiting instructions so you know exactly how you can use that evidence and how you can't use it. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we begin our examination of the state's first witnesses in the trial. 
If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.